this podcast airs in early November, schools around the nation will be wrapping up their first quarter of the 2016-17 academic year. According to some research, that will have been just enough time to make up for the amount of learning students typically lose during summer vacation. These kinds of statistics have led educators to develop a range of strategies to maintain or even build student knowledge over the summer months. But other researchers dispute the importance of summer learning loss, and in particular its role in contributing to gaps in achievement along lines of race and class. So just how much does summer vacation disrupt student learning? And what can educators and parents do about it? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by David Quinn, Assistant Professor of Education at the University of Southern California's Rossier School. David is a leading researcher on the topic of summer learning and, along with Morgan Polikoff, the author of the recent article on the Ednext website entitled, Summer Learning Loss, What Is It and What Can We Do About It? David, welcome to the Ednext podcast. Thanks, Marty. It's great to be here. So let's start with the basics. What exactly is summer learning loss? So when people talk about summer learning loss, um, they usually have one thing in mind, which is um, a phenomenon where um, students um, lose part of what they learned over the school year uh, during the summer vacation months. And this can be seen by students uh, scoring lower on tests in the fall when they return to school uh, compared to the spring. Um, the concern, of course, is that over the summer, students are not engaged in um, academically stimulating activities. They're not reading as much. They're not practicing their math. And um, they end up, um, as a result, forgetting some of what they learned or getting rusty in some of their skills. And so this is um, important because it means that, um, as you alluded to, when students return to school in the fall, teachers need to spend some extra time getting them back up to speed. And that is time that uh, can't be spent on learning new material. So over the course of their school careers, um, this time adds up and students end up learning less um, than they would have in the absence of summer loss. And educators respond to it by repeating a lot of material that they presumably had covered or their predecessors in the student's educational career had covered the prior year. Exactly. That's, uh, I hear that complaint a lot from uh, my students who are in elementary school. Um, and I think, if I understand it correctly, a lot of the concern about summer learning loss is about how it might not be equal in size across different student groups and might, in particular, contribute to gaps in achievement along lines of race and class. Is that right? Exactly. So that, that's another key question in the, the summer learning literature. So there's the concern that students from um, more advantaged backgrounds uh, who have access to um, various types of resources that are important for learning, uh, be they financial resources, um, human capital resources in the form of um, higher educational attainment of their parents, um, social capital, cultural capital resources that can connect them to uh, experiences that are useful for their learning over the summertime. Um, so they continue to learn where um, students who don't have uh, access to those uh, resources in the same way um, don't learn as much or may even uh, experience declines in their academic tra trajectories over this, uh, the summertime. Now, this phenomenon of summer learning loss or summer gap growth, as you refer to it in the article, it's clearly of practical interest for educators, but it's also been sort of an intellectual interest for some scholars who have tried to use it to reframe debates over the extent to which schools serve to equalize educational opportunity in the U.S. Oftentimes we think that disparities in access to school quality are a key contributor to achievement gaps, but if it's really the case that these gaps grow faster in the summer than they do during the school year, that would seem to suggest that schools play more of an equalizing role than is widely perceived. 
what do you make of that interpretation of the literature or the phenomenon of summer learning loss? Is it a useful way to think about the issue? Uh, well, I would say yes and no. Um, so on the one hand, I think that it's incredibly important to understand the role that um, schools and institutions are playing in either um, mitigating inequalities and providing more equal opportunities versus um, reproducing inequalities. Um, a couple of points that I'll, I'll, I'll make on it, though, are one, um, so there are there are many ways in which uh, schools may contribute um, to either providing equal opportunity or um, making things more unequal that don't relate directly to test scores. So um, if if we're looking at seasonal patterns in learning, we're we're getting um, a hint of, of the role that schools play for academic trajectories, which are obviously important when it comes to uh, opportunity for students. Um, but there's a lot that we're also not seeing about the effects of schools on um, you know providing equal opportunity for different groups of students by race and by socioeconomic status. Um, another point that I think is uh, important to make here is that um, when we do, so insofar as we're interested in looking at academic trajectories specifically on test scores, um, we, well, first we have to make a lot of assumptions if, if we're going to interpret seasonal patterns causally as the effect of, of schools on uh, students' learning as compared to um, what happens to their learning over the summertime. But um, when we're making that comparison, we're, we're essentially asking what, are, what is the effect of schools on inequality as compared to a counterfactual where there are no schools at all, where nobody's attending school. And so that, that's useful theoretically when we're thinking about the effects of schools. But in terms of, of the practicality, um, it, it's probably not the best counterfactual because, uh, you know, the, the proposal to abolish schooling entirely is not really on the table. Yeah, I haven't heard many people talking about that recently. About about abolishing schools? Yes. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, I, I. I. So I, I hear you saying that it's sort of an in, interesting intellectual exercise, but uh, really we should be talking about the practical role of summer learning loss and what we can do about it. Just how important of a of a phenomenon is it? And exactly. Yeah. So I think that the the more the, the more worthwhile counterfactual um, is probably the counterfactual. Of, well, what what happens under the current system of schooling compared to some other um, system where resources are distributed? differently. Yeah. So where did the idea of summer learning loss come from? I'm sure educators have been aware of it as long as we've had the traditional school calendar, but when and where did it find its way into the academic literature? Yeah, so it's um, there. There are studies going back to 1908 where education researchers were looking at what happened to students learning over the summertime when they were out of school. Um, in the like in more modern times, uh, there were two seminal studies that um, really got the conversation going around um, summer learning and the role in achievement gaps. One was a study done by Barbara Hines in Atlanta in the 1970s, and another was um, done in Baltimore, uh, the Baltimore Beginning School Study done by uh, Entwistle and Alexander, where they started um, following students in the 1980s. And both of these studies um, showed that uh, summer had an important role to play in the development of achievement, achievement gaps, um, both by, by race and by socioeconomic status. So both of these studies concluded that gaps primarily developed over the summer and not so much over the school year. So students um, across racial and um, SES backgrounds learned at similar rates over the school year, but during the summertime, the, the gaps started to widen. Yeah, I believe the author of the Atlanta study, Barbara Hines, even sort of went so far as to suggest that if summers didn't exist, there wouldn't be an achievement gap, at least among Atlanta students. Yeah, exactly. That's right. 
And of course, one of the questions you would have about those studies is, are Atlanta and Baltimore representative uh, of what's happening more broadly? But there are a number of other questions that we could ask as well. So let's fast forward to the more recent evidence that you discuss in the article. And of course, you've been a key contributor to that research. As, as I understand it, two of your main contributions have been first to analyze summer learning loss using the most recent national data that we have available to look at it. But second, also to demonstrate that measuring gap growth in particular is trickier than it might appear. So let's start with the second issue. It, it seems as if measuring this should be easy. Just test kids in the spring, test them again in the fall, and compare the two scores for students in different groups. Why is it not quite that simple? Well, there are a few things that make it complicated. Um, one is a rather technical issue, which has to do with the, the way that tests are scaled. Um, and so the, the headline with that issue is basically that in some of the early studies, um, the Atlanta and the Baltimore studies, um, back then tests were scaled in a different way compared to how they're scaled now. Uh, there have been improvements in psychometrics, and by no fault of the researchers who were doing those studies that were using the state-of-the-art methods at the time, uh, the improved scaling methods that are used today um, tend to show less uh, gap growth over, over the summertime uh, compared to the earlier methods for scaling. So, so one issue is just the way that the test scores are constructed. Um, there are other issues as well, including how we decide that we want to operationalize uh, inequality. What do we mean when, when we refer to a gap? So one way that we might go about defining a gap would be to say we're going to look at the mean difference in test scores between two groups of students um, and see how that changes from the spring to the fall. So the average black student, the average white student, or the average poor student, the average non-poor student. Exactly. So you can and, and look at the mean difference in the spring and compare that to the mean difference in the fall. And if, if that mean difference stays the same, then you might say, well, the gaps have not grown at all. Um, but there's another way that you could look at it and ask, well, how does the overlap of the two distributions change uh, over time? And that's a different way of thinking about inequality where we're not just looking at the mean difference in the groups, but we're also looking at the overall variation in the test scores. And so how many black students score at least as high as a typical white student or a question like that? Exactly, right. And, and it turns out that um, depending on how you, you decide to define inequality, you, you may come away with a different impression of what happens over the summer. So given these measurement challenges, what exactly can we say at this point? Just how significant would you in your judgment as a researcher, say that summer learning loss and summer gap growth are when it comes to understanding the achievement of American students? I would say um, that, it, that it's important. Um, it's probably not as big of a factor as it once seemed to be uh, from some of the early research. Um, the some of the best research that we have now um, from a, a national level comes from the Eccles 2011. So this was um, some data that I analyzed with some colleagues and we have a, a pretty good sense from that data that in the first few years of schooling, so from kindergarten up till second grade, um, students on average don't really experience absolute loss in, in, um, during the summertime. Their, their trajectories certainly slow down in learning compared to the school year, but they don't actually become negative. Um, and when it comes to widening of gaps, we see some widening of gaps. So, for example, gaps by socioeconomic status um, in math widen over the summer after kindergarten. But um, we don't see a lot happening with the SES gap um, in, in, in later summers or much really happening in reading. 
And you're working there with the early childhood longitudinal study, ECHLS, as you referred to it. So this is focusing on very young students. Do mm -hmm. we know anything about these issues for students in middle or high school? Yeah, so the, the best data on that, the best current data come from um, the NWEA assessments. These are um, computerized assessments that are used in um, schools and districts across the country. And those go up through middle and, and high school. And um, there's some work done by uh, Atterbury and McKechn. They analyzed some of that NWEA data for students actually from grade two up until um, grade uh, seven, I believe it was. And this comes from one, one individual state, and, and they, they found, um, in contrast to some of um, what we see in the, in the early childhood um, studies, they, they found that students actually did experience absolute um, loss over uh, the summertime on average, and that students from minoritized backgrounds and um, low-income backgrounds experienced more of a loss um, compared to other students. So the gaps grew, and also students experienced um, absolute loss. So it's at, it, least, it's at least possible that this phenomena or these phenomena are more important for older students. Yes, it is. So, um, so that, that's a possibility. Um, and in comparing these these two studies, another possibility, of course, is that um, the the patterns um, differ by geography. So, at a national picture, we might not see it, but we might see variation um, by localities and what the summer learning patterns are for students. All right. So, we're a little bit on the fence about just how significant a role it plays, but it's clearly an important phenomenon. We know that the trajectory of learning slows down, and so let's you know, that suggests that summer is at least a missed opportunity. So um, what might schools do about that? The first thing that comes to mind is summer school. Does summer school work? Yeah, so um, well, James Kim and I actually did a, a meta-analysis on this a few years ago where we were looking at um, the effects of summer school programs. And in the meta-analysis, we found that on average, summer school programs do work, um, but there is, of course, variation in the effectiveness of, of different programs. And the, that variation uh, depends on things that you might expect that it would depend on. So it depends on the quality of the instruction um, that's delivered over the summer school. When um, programs use research-based practices that are endorsed by the National Reading Panel, um, those programs have stronger effects compared to programs that um, don't use uh, research-based instruction. And one of the points you make in the article is that you should pay attention to who you're getting to teach summer school, that maybe this is an opportunity actually to draw on some of the most effective educators in a given area rather than just take whoever happens to be available. Absolutely, and, and that's a, a challenge that um, schools often face is getting their best teachers to uh, agree to teach summer school. Now, summer school is pretty expensive as a way to go about trying to combat summer learning loss. How should that change the way in which policymakers think about it? Well, so there's some exciting research in this area where um, researchers have been trying to devise alternatives to traditional classroom-based summer school and um, giving more attention to home-based uh, interventions. And so home-based interventions would typically be where students receive materials over the summer for uh, different types of learning experiences. Uh, James Kim has designed a, one of those programs that's been uh, shown to be effective in the research uh, called Reads for Summer Learning. And um, I did some um, collaborative work with him uh, evaluating the effects of that program. And in this program, students receive books in the mail over the summer that are matched to um, their reading level and interest, and they, they come with activities uh, to help them comprehend the books. 
and uh, the program has shown to be been shown to be effective for um, students from low-income backgrounds. Um, and those effects are, have even been seen on the state test in the spring following uh, the summer intervention. But one of the things that's really nice about um, these home-based programs, as you alluded to, is that they're less less costly than the the, um, the uh, classroom-based summer school programs. And perhaps they also provide a little bit more flexibility for students to be spending some time during the summer doing some non-academic things as well. Definitely, yes. And, um, many students don't want to go back into the classroom over the summer, and so this provides them the freedom to, um, to, to do those other classic summer activities that they want to do. Now, your article is directed mainly at policymakers and perhaps to educators as well. The other big group of people who influence what happens over the summer are parents. And I can say from experience that many of us struggle to balance a desire to make sure our kids continue to progress academically with wanting them to take advantage of opportunities over the summer to engage in other kinds of learning. Uh, Of course, many parents are in circumstances that make it difficult to do much of either, but How do you think that parents with choices should approach that calculus? Is summer a time when we should really be focused on academic development or uh, are there, you know, other things we should be paying attention to as well? Yeah, I think that's that's a great question and it's a difficult challenge um, because obviously academic uh, achievement is important, but it's one facet of um, an individual's life and there are many other facets that are important in a child's development um, outside of academic development. And there is a decision um, that, you know, parents um, need to make when it comes to trade-offs over the summertime. so I think that that's sort of you know a, an individual decision. When it gets aggregated to the policy level, it's also particularly complicated because um, with interventions such as summer school, as we've been discussing, you know the the goal is to provide equity um, academically for students who are less privileged and who are lower performing. But at the same time, you don't want to lose sight of other dimensions of equity, such as your know, privileges for summer vacation, so that um, you know we, we don't want to end up in a situation where the privileged students end up uh, getting uh, summer vacation and other students uh, with less privilege end up um, needing to attend school year-round. So maybe trying to find a way to empower as many families with the same options that uh, others have. Definitely, yeah. And so there are other types of learning experiences um, beyond traditional classroom uh, settings that provide both stimulation and interest for students, um, but also end up being um, uh, academically beneficial. And figuring out a way policy-wise to make sure that those opportunities are available um, regardless of social class is um, an important policy goal in my mind. So, you know, providing like enriching um, summer camp opportunities, you know, robotic summer camps that may be useful for developing STEM achievement and, um, you know, summer theater programs that are useful for literacy development and that type of thing. My guest today has been David Quinn, Assistant Professor of Education at the University of Southern California. His article, Summer Learning Loss, What Is It and What Can We Do About It, is available now at educationnext.org. David, thanks for being part of the podcast. Thanks, Marty. It's been great. You've been listening to the EdNext Podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or another platform so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.